Welcome back to Talk Evidence, your monthly roundup of everything in the world of EBM. Well, maybe not everything, <laughs> at least a decent chunk of it. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor for the BMJ, and as always, I'm joined by our two favourite EBM nerds, Helen and Carl. Hi, my name's Carl Hennigan. I am editor-in-chief of BMJ Evidence-Based Medicine, a GP, and also an academic. You're getting more important well, yeah. every time you come on this show. Carl. Well, I'm sort of slightly distracted because I was thinking of the idea that we were just abreast of all the evidence in the world and we were on top of everything, which is complete nonsense. I mean, you're a professor of EBM. Surely that is that's your one job. <laughs> <laughs> How can anybody keep up to date? It is incredibly difficult and if not getting harder in the world with the amount of information that's published. Added to that is a bit of fake news. Added to that is an overwhelming number of journals that are increasing. So it's a real difficult problem. That's why you should listen to this podcast, because we distill it for you to some of the important stuff. Or at least talk about the general big themes anyway. So, uh, Helen, could you introduce yourself as well? I'm Helen MacDonald, UK Research Editor at the BMJ, and I also trained as a GP. And I just like, as an aside, how Carl can't even wait to the rant bit of the podcast before he starts there. You're just raring to go this week. So, as always, we have our what to start, what to stop. Um, It's a nice way to open. So, uh, Helen, you generally bring the rapid recommendations. And they're doing really well in the BMJ. People seem to really care about these. Yes, they're very red. They're some of our most red content. And I have another one for you. So this one is looking at the pros and cons of colorectal cancer screening in otherwise asymptomatic people who are over 50 and looking at whether it's worth it and if it's worth it, then which test is best. There are various options. You can do faecal immunochemical testing every year, every two years. You can have uh, a one-off sigmoidoscopy or you can have a one-off colonoscopy. And at the moment, um, organisations around the world um, do tend to recommend screening, but there's quite a lot of variation on who gets screened, what test is used. In some places, it's quite systematic and offered to everybody, and in other places, it's quite opportunistic. Um, And uptake varies quite a bit and hovers around 50%, suggesting that there's quite a bit of variation in how people out there value this uh, offer that's made to them. Um, And the Rapid Recommendations team looked at this issue because there were some new trials that came out looking at long-term outcomes um, on sigmoidoscopy screening um, published over the last couple of years, which suggested that up to 15 years later, it was still worthwhile having um, screening done. And also finding something quite interesting that perhaps there was less of a benefit for women. So here is our verdict or their verdict. Um, They make weak recommendations um, and suggest that there is limited evidence to suggest screening is worth it if you have less than a 3% risk of colorectal cancer over the next 10 years. And there is a handy online tool where you can go and work out what your risk of colorectal cancer is. If all of the testing options are available to you in your healthcare system, there are lots of different pros and cons of them. And mostly um, it's the practical issues or the convenience of those tests that's likely to drive your decision rather than there being a standout winner amongst those tests. Um, And overall, the guidance suggests that there's really an increased need for shared decision making um, and discussion about what people's preferences are as to whether it's worth it. 
for you? So it's interesting. I think this concept of putting an artificial line in the sand of 3% for me creates some problems because <clears throat> you talk about what happens if your risk is 2.9 versus 3.1%. And I think that creates a, an issue. How can you interpret that small difference that you go over and above the threshold? That means you should be tested. So where I think this goes slightly wrong, so I like the paper, I like what they've done, is when we talk about risk threshold, we're generally talking about we're going to offer it to the population at this risk. Mm -hmm. Because all of the benefits come when you do it at the population level. So if you take over 65-year-olds, there's about 20 million people you'd screen. And if you screened them, you'd save at a 3%, you'd save about 36,000. So they're 3% risk, are they? Yeah, so on average 3%, some are more or less. But you'd save about 36,000. So the benefits of screening only come if you screen everybody because the individual benefits are small. So if we all start talking about either side of the risk in making a decision, the question is then should we be screening at all? Well, that's very interesting. Because one of the things that the team highlight as an uncertainty at the end of the paper was a lack of information about what the public actually viewed as a reasonable threshold to um, offer screening. Well, that's really interesting because I went, it said in the paper, it recommended the Q-risk for cancer. It did. So I actually did my Q-risk for cancer. Well, actually, I have a 0.89% risk of having cancer as yet undiagnosed. So that's pretty good, actually. But then I realised my age should be, uh, the average is 0.49%. And therefore, I'm 1.8 times more more likely than the average population. And and the thing is, it didn't matter what I did to any of my risks. I tried to lower my weight, tried to remove all features. I couldn't get it down to 0.49. I was a bit worried about that. But how does it feel when suddenly you're told, actually, 80% chance, more chance than the average population at your age? And that's the problem with these numbers is suddenly you bring a level of anxiety where you go, OK, it's low risk, but you're more likely than an average. And what put me up was actually the fact is I had a cough this year. I went to see my GP. Well, I have a condition, reactive asthma. Therefore, that's why I went. And I have to go because I have to go for annual screening with that diagnosis. Uh, and I had a change in bowel habit. Well, most people have at one point. So it's a very difficult concept to put this information in and then use it in a way that makes sense. And to me, what do we know? I know that my risk goes up with age, and that's my most important risk factor. So by the time I'm 60, it will be about 2.5% and rise to 3.5% by 65. Therefore, the decision is not 2 to 3. It's when should you actually, at what age should you decide to screen? Well, I think this the team decided to go against an age-based approach because there are people either side of those ages that that can have differing risks. So I think they, they were quite deliberate as to using... I mean, age is just a binary cut-off again, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, then it makes the screening impossible because how do you identify everybody at free and say you must come in? The idea of screening is where you derive the benefits is you apply mm-hmm. it to an asymptomatic mm-hmm. population and screen the whole population. If you start to only screen a few people, you don't derive the benefits, do you? That's how I understand it. So you need to make it really simple for people and it's not simple if you go... Or I guess you could use this to up the risk. I mean, if you wanted to identify a higher risk population and derive a bigger benefit, you could, couldn't you? Well, I think this is the issue about screening. It's quite an interesting context is people believe we screen, only benefit harmed happens. Whereas actually we need more of the debate about what is the 
purpose and benefits of screening and are we actually realising them, particularly as treatments advance? And is this where you want to put your resources? Or should you put your resources into faster earlier diagnosis for symptomatic patients, rapid access schemes? Should you put your money into uh, m- more costly interventions and the research? And I think this is a debate now is becoming really important because we do know that people don't take up all of these screening interventions, do they? I think they don't. They don't. Um, and you talk about maybe getting a, a high-risk population that, that would do you know, a sort of pre-screening um, step. But in this, the uh, this is the most complex rapid recommendation I think I've It was I've one of the most challenging ones. To pull all together. I mean, if you go on there, there are, there are so many more diagrams. It doesn't look like anything that we've done yeah, before. Yeah, actually, if you are going to use this at with a patient, uh, what I would suggest that you do is click through onto the uh, magic site, which is linked from the article. Um, because there you can type in your individual risk and you can pick the outcomes and um, conveniences that matter to you and pull it together in a very personalised way. On our site and in our infographic, I think it was extremely challenging to present um, a summary. So we're very, we're very aware of the fact that the graphic for this one is really only giving you the very tip of the iceberg of of what data is behind that and what you can do with it. So I I mean that's really important. I have looked at the visual and uh, it's very visually appealing. I could see you putting it on your wall as a nice little piece, but actually it took quite a bit of time for me to get my head around it. And when it did, actually it was quite useful. But I think there's a need to produce a very simple summary on one page that says here's what's going to happen and also that might print out. Now I think this is a really important area to develop and for people to start working on mm. to really improve the quality of this information. I think this is a great start and I suspect it needs loads of people to think about it, try different aspects of it. And this is at the forefront of shared decision making, informing the public. There's very little research goes into this type of uh, activity and there's actually a very little testing goes on in terms of how do people use this information so I think it's great and it should be invested in and there should be much more of it Well that paper is called Colorectal Cancer Screening with Fecal Immunochemical Testing Sigmoidoscopy or Colonoscopy a Clinical Practice Guideline um, and I'll put the links in the podcast. That was a bit of a mouthful, wasn't it? It is. I've got good at doing these, though. Okay. It used to take me like 20 goes to, to be able to say the name of the paper. <laughs> now, the next one we're going to talk about is even longer. Brace yourselves. Effectiveness of routine third trimester ultrasonography to reduce adverse perinatal outcomes in low-risk pregnancy, the IRIS study, nationwide, pragmatic, multi-centre, stepped-wedged, cluster-randomised trial Basically, should you scan very pregnant ladies? That would have been so much easier. Carl? The iris study. The iris study. (laughs) Now, look, I really do like this paper, and there's lots of really interesting evidence-based components to this. It's the first to say is this is, as you said, routine ultrasound in third trimester patients in largely well ladies who are pregnant. 
13,046 women, greater than 16 years of age, and they did this stepped wedged randomised control What does that design. mean, Carl? <laughs> I knew you'd come in at that point. Well, what That's you why do- I'm really glad that you're reading this <laughs> yeah, one out. Yeah, I thought you'd come I in. I had it. to Google it when I was looking at this. Book. Yeah, so what, one of the things to think about is when we talk about quality improvement, a lot of people say is is quality improvement in practice really difficult to understand what's going on and this design is uses cluster based design so it takes practices and randomizes the practice as opposed to randomizing an individual so you go to a whole practice and that's the cluster and what you're going to do is with because this is a service instead of saying we're going to give half the practices the intervention and half the not you say at some point in the future all the practices are going to get the intervention so you start at the beginning with everybody as a control, no intervention, and say you've got 40 practices. You randomise the practices in a stepped wedge design. So, for instance, five might get it at the first month, five the next month, five the next month, five after. And by so it's someone, more like a sort of staggered start. Yeah, Everyone's yeah. going to have a go. Correct. Mm. I like what you're saying. So it's a bit like a staggered start, and at some point everybody's going to be doing the intervention, and then you can evaluate the whole intervention. And what it is, is it's really helpful because what it tries to do is say, well, all of these practices are clusters and you're trying to also account for there may be some features in the cluster that might explain the effect. You know, it might be you're in a rural versus a city and in there the midwives practice differently and they're more informed and educated. And you use the control arm and the intervention arm and and evaluate both of the arms. And what did they show? They showed that actually there was a uh, effect on picking up small for gestational age babies, but no effect on severe adverse perinatal outcomes, which is what you're really interested. And the difference was uh, a difference of 1.7 versus 1.8% between the intervention and the usual care arm. And that difference was not statistical significant but there was an increase in induction of labour and a decreased incidence of augmentation of labour, which is stimulation of the uterus. So this is great quality improvement. This is how it should be done in practice, is we have a particular non-drug intervention, if you like. It's a bit of a package. It includes education, ultrasound, and at a practice level. And by doing it in this way, we become very clear that actually in low-risk pregnancies, we shouldn't be using ultrasound. Quite simple. You stunned into silence. <laughs> I've explained that so well. Uh, Helen MacDonald has nothing to say. <laughs> I don't have nothing to say. <laughs> this third trimester ultrasound really common. I think it's growing in how how common it is. So so I think there are kind of clinical indications as to why you might get it if your um, baby has been um, transverse or breech or suspected to be in the third trimester. They, that's an indication to have it done to see, check that the baby's the right way around as you approach your birth planning. And then obviously another reason to scan would be if the measurements of the baby suggest that perhaps it's either too big or or bigger than you might expect at that stage or smaller than you might expect at that stage. So but this not would routinely. just be yeah, but this would just be saying everyone, no matter what has this what the issue and it's interesting because it's not really like you're trying to detect a specific thing this is why this is why I was standing to silence because I was trying to imagine what it was that you were trying to find with this third trimester scan is it like a few babies that were the wrong way round is it a few babies that might be too big or too small or polyhydramnios or um, so I guess it was um, 
Yeah, well, I was I, trying to think through what it was about. So, so to me, it seems that the most important thing they were de- trying to was fetal growth restriction. Okay. Now, the problem with that is, uh, wherever you are, there will be a proportion of baby which will be the 10 centiles will be well, yes. abnormal, or, or yeah. you consider abnormal. So you will always have a potential to intervene, and that's yeah. where you have the increased induction of labour. Yeah. Now, uh, what the interesting issue is, though, that you really are interested in the really important clinical outcomes, the perinatal outcomes, and I think what that discounted. But what's interesting here, the Dutch Ministry of Health considered introducing routine ultrasonography. Therefore, this is a policy initiative, and this is the way to answer policy initiatives. And there's a really nice linked opinion piece to this paper written by those people, isn't it, explaining what the question that the policymakers had and how this trial has informed the fact that actually it's not worth doing in this situation. And there's a really interesting paper in BMJ 2015, which is a research methods and reporting that explains all about step wedge design. Really good read, actually. And As all of our research and reporting are. Well, not quite all, <laughs> but this one's quite a good one. And, and what it does is show you the different designs you can use when you've got these cluster-type effects. And in primary care, we tend to do interventions that are non-drug interventions in these cluster-based trials. And there are some interesting methodological challenges to that. But I would like to see all policy initiatives that particularly come from government or above to go into this type of design. No, it's really good. The right research at the right mm. time to stop mm. this before it becomes routine because, as we know, it's really hard to pull interventions back once they've uh, they've taken hold. This could be attributed to you, Duncan, as your, your statement or right research at the right time from Duncan Jarvis. <laughs> <laughs> Now, as we went through that uh, that research paper, there were a few acronyms in there. SGA, LGA, POP, LOS. And uh, though you like the paper, I can uh, see that was getting your blood pressure going a bit, well, Carl. Well, it is interesting. Um, is This paper is actually quite nicely written and actually has a number of acronyms, but is low on the number of acronyms. But I actually picked out this other paper, which was Prognostic Model for Outcome Prediction in Patients with Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease. Also published in the BMJ. In the Systematic Review and Critical Mm -hmm. Appraisal. I didn't say COPD there, hear that? But uh, we won't go about the fact is it's about prognostic models and it's uh, so many issues about prognostic models in this paper that say actually what's going on there. They found 408 prognostic models and couldn't pick anyone out that was of value. But what I'm going to is... When you have this section, which is already known on this topic mm-hmm. and what this study had, I think yeah. it's a really useful section. It's very useful. But I want, I'm going to hand this over to Helen MacDonald to read the second uh, paragraph of what this study adds. By applying ProBast showed that ADO, BAED, BEADC, <laughs> <laughs> extended ADO, updated ADO updated BODE and a model developed by Bartons et al. were derived in studies assessed as being at low risk of bias. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't think she I was need trying to... so hard to keep the faith. <laughs> <laughs> Might I add that when you, you nearly said it right, you, it, it's BAD. Sorry, it is bad. 
and that we now I'm going to put to the editorial team to ban acronyms in already known on this topic and what this study adds because at least in this part you're going in and trying to get a summary of what and if you're left with an acronym of which this is terrible you're like I've just no idea what. What we're does on. it actually mean? Are you so <laughs> concentrating on reading out the letters? I have no it? idea, and that was my problem. Is basically, I think what it means is that actually the quality of all of these instruments was pretty poor, and that maybe there are a few that are more are lower risk than others. But it's it's you have to go into the paper to to be able to say this. And to be honest with you, ac- acronyms in abstracts or acronyms in areas where you're trying to improve understandings like what is known and what this adds are banned and should be thrown in the bin and only should be for very com- common acronyms and people like COPD mm, yes but I think yeah I think I think fair but also what you do is you end up writing a paper where you end up with them so all over the place that you you lose track of and I do spend I a lot I feel that maximum number of acronyms is three yeah, that's paper. interesting. I, I, I think that, yeah, my brain can retain about three acronyms per paper. So I wonder if there's a, I mean, I really like the Economist style guide. If you're a writer out there, there are, you have to go to areas where you go, look, there's, there's, it, it helps you focus your writing down. And the newspapers rip out acronyms if you go in the main media because they just don't like them. Mm. I wonder if we need a style guide for acceptable acronyms versus ones where we go, okay, if you're going to use this, you only have a maximum and of three And acronyms unknowns. that have an overwhelming number of meanings, like ED. Well, I was going to say, I'm yes. on this. Emergency department, erectile eating disorder, dysfunction. erectile dysfunction. I'm sure there's more. Every um, day. Yeah. Every day. Uh, but I, there's something in here about, just on that point, it, it kind of abstracts what you're talking about and allows a lot of... I don't know, fuzziness to come into people's thinking about what these things are sometimes. It's really easy to say COPD, but actually, you know, it, it makes it, maybe that's a bad example, but it, it takes it away from what the, the patient's actually experiencing. You see, I think the assumption is that people read papers from beginning to end. Yet when we talk about critical appraisal or trying to read a paper, you just don't have time to go and say, I'm going to read everything. So if you all come in at the middle and go, right, I want to go right to the results section and understand what's going on. If you come right in at the acronyms, you're lost. And so you can end up spending quite a few minutes going around the paper. Now, in most books or reports, they would actually say, here's a sort of bibliography of the acronyms that we're about to use. So there may be something that says, here's the nine we're going to use in this paper might make life easier if you can up front say here's the list of them so i think there's some thinking needs to go into this mm. and i think there's some style guide of here's the accepted ones that are okay and i like your free free or max is the, is the position because then it would sort of limit people to think we're going to use ones and we're not going to use them in a way that confuses everybody mm, i think just academic writing in general could uh could do with with some of this. Have you read? Um, we just published a, an opinion piece by Paul Simpson um, for Halloween, saying we need an army of academic zombie hunters, which essentially has a go at this and says there's no reason why academic writing has to be so impenetrable all the time. And there are these phrases dead, and things. Dead. Isn't that the point of it? Dead. Yeah. Just chop it all out. Just just k- kill it. Get rid of it. The, it's really interesting when I, if you go into Oxford and you come down the high street, and I, I'd use this in talk. If you, the, on is a, a blue plaque for uh, Hook, 
and everybody will know Hook and Boyle's law from their chemistry. And Hook was one of the first fellows of the Royal Society. And as the first FRF fellow of the Royal Society, he was paid to do an experiment every week. And then he had to give a public lecture, and a priest would often verify that. A priest? A priest would verify the experiment and verify what had gone on. So, remember, there's no internet, there's no newspaper. So oh, what you mean it... to check he wasn't lying? Yeah, so, if oh, it, so okay. he'd say, I observed this experiment and it was true and a fact, and he would write it up. But in doing that, it was communicating to the public as a public mm. lecture. So once you start to think about your academic writing like that and you think about the impact he had within them experiments, I mean, once mm. a week, once a year for most people would be too much, but the idea that you are actually taking research and communicating to a wider audience is an important job of academia. And it's not just doing experiments, it's trying to communicate them, and particularly to the public. If you do that well and learn them skills, I think you could revolutionise some of this we read, but it's not easy. No. I mean, everywhere could do with this. We're going into election season now, and it seems like politicians are saying things that, you know, equally are maybe deliberately, I suppose, as to, I suppose, deliberately vague and, and, you know, don't actually mean anything underneath it. This must be quite a, a difficult time for politicians because we're moving into a new era where there's a, an army of nerds emerging who will fact-check what people say, won't they? I love the idea of that, an army of nerds. An uh, army of political well, don't we have our own? Oh, don't we have our own nerd army forming, Dunk? Well, that's a, that's a good segue, Helen. Well, we do, actually. We are planning in the BMJ to uh, fact-check some of the things that are going to be um, talked about. Maybe not everything that politicians say, because they tend to say a lot, but some key things every week uh, about the NHS, about healthcare that well, uh, it comes a, out. There was an article, wasn't there, in the, recently, the news article, which was NHS becomes political football as electioneering kicks off. And I think the era of uh, healthcare being used politically has to come to an end. Because it's not just as simple as people saying, we're going to have X thousand more doctors, we're going to do more screening, we're going to do this. To, to be able to make these decisions, you have to be incredibly informed, understand the context of clinical practice, the evidence and what the values of society and bring all that together. Therefore, I think we should just completely take uh, healthcare and the decision making outside of politicians. Politicians' role should be to decide how much money should be made available should be to talk about the laws and the regulations, like clinical trials regulation, device legislation, and bring that together. But actually what we now need is a bit like the Bank of England, is independence within healthcare. And we need a head of the Bank of Healthcare. You're putting yourself forward, Carl. I am available for this role. (laughs) But that would require much more thoughtful use of the funds and divert them where we're supposed to get the most benefit and the most value for our use We're, and use the resources efficiently and effectively and not use them in a political way that says we're just going to spend more money on X or Y. And I Dementia think, screening. Yeah, or... yeah. Or we're going to put buses in a car park and screen everybody for lung cancer and it looks politically motivated. Health checks. Health checks. So, <laughs> that's, so in this new bank of the NHS, you're going to end up with possibly a number of wise people who are going to come together and explain why we're going to do something and explain on an evidence base and 
what we've just discussed today is that a classic example of that, like the routine ultrasound scanning. And sometimes they might go, we're not going to do that. We're going to do a step wage trial and we're going to inform the NHR to fund this because we want the answer. And when we get the answer, we'll rule on it and remove it from politics. And if we did that, we could revolutionise our approach to healthcare and the politicians could get back to thinking about how much money is needed, what regulations are required and remove themselves from the politicisation. I think that was another rant. That's two rants. Or kind of a suggestion. (laughs) I'm feeling ranty because it's winter's coming and it's getting dark and I'm sort of like trying to gear myself up for Christmas maybe in (laughs) November, so I'm feeling a bit more ranty. A warming rant. I feel we should return to more nitty-gritty clinical matters. So talking of news, I saw something in the paper, BBC picked up a note, note sort of went everywhere about timing of medications. Yes. And I thought, this is something I should ask you guys, because I don't think ever when I've had something from the GP, they've told me about when. I to picked take up it. on this one also because I thought it asked a really interesting question, which is kind of, does it matter when you take your antihypertensive medication? Um, and does it protect you against major cardiovascular events if you take it in the evening as opposed to the morning um and it's such a simple thing isn't it just sort of making the most of the medications that we have and and making sure that we're using them as effectively as possible um and it was widely picked up wasn't it that um it made quite a substantial difference to to morbidity and mortality um but Carl and I've had a look at this paper actually in the last few minutes and it's actually quite tricky to to unpick some elements of it particularly to try and understand what absolute difference it made. Mm. Um, well I did actually go and speak to, to someone about this Melvin Lober who's a sort of specialist in hypertension um, I'll drop this in now and then we can we can have a chat about it afterwards. My name is Professor Melvin Lobo and I'm a blood pressure specialist working in the Barts Heart Centre, Barts Cardiac Centre in London, where I run um, a department in which we have a number of cardiologists focused um, almost exclusively on blood pressure disorders. The Hygia chronotherapy trial published in the European Heart Journal. This is not new uh, research in terms of uh, being interested in the concept of timing of uh, antihypertensive medications, but it's certainly the most um, relevant and important trial of its uh, kind uh, because of the scale and because of um, a number of very sort of strong points in the methodology. And so um, research in this area of what we call chronotherapy has been of interest um, historically. And we've been sitting on this information for quite some time, but stuck in a groove of continuing to recommend patients to take medications predominantly in the morning time. Uh, one example would be we are well aware that the renin angiotensin system is predominantly active during sleep. So drugs such as ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers have been very clearly shown to have improved effect when given at night time. And yet um, this has not been common practice. Another example would be the calcium channel blocker classes of drugs. And in particular with amlodipine, there's been quite a lot of work to demonstrate that if you use amlodipine at nighttime rather than morning time uh, dosing, you see much improved pharmacokinetic profiles 
with longer half-life of the drug and greater peak plasma uh, concentrations and um, greater blood pressure lowering effect with interestingly less in the way of adverse effects such as ankle swelling. And, and so I think the profession has to some extent overlooked this because perhaps historically we've been teaching uh, doctors and medical students that blood pressure is higher during the day than at night time. And that's obviously true. Blood pressure tends to dip at night in, in a healthy population. And uh, therefore, one might want the uh, majority effect of a drug uh, to happen uh, during the daytime and, and be less concerned about nighttime uh, efficacy. And therefore, uh, historically, there's been this tendency to advise um, patients to take antihypertensive medication in the morning time. Uh, and I think this study is probably going to disrupt that um, uh, legacy to some extent. Well, it's a really interesting um, um, colleague of mine, uh, Mark Porter, who does Inside Health at Radio 4, unfortunately has stepped down and retired and gone back to general practice. <laughs> but he signed off his programme with saying, I started 10 years ago talking about hypertensive and nighttime blood pressure, and now I'm finishing the programme with the same issue. And I think what it is, is a really interesting issue is, this seems to me a really important effect. And if this was a new drug, and you said we've got 50% reduction in cardiovascular mortality strokes, they'd be all over the show marketing, it'd be out there, we'd be pushing it. Mm. But because it's not a drug and it's just something we have to do, there's no marketing effect. Mm. So what this shows to me is that there's a real need to push implementation research. If we take this, uh, there's reporting problems, we explain the absolute effects, and then we say, look, we're going to try this, we're going to make it happen, we could put it into practices, we could monitor them to see if they get the actual effects that we observe. Is this a true effect? And if so, can we look at that in what we'd call a phase four post-marketing? Well, this would be a post-nighttime study. Mm. <laughs> Do we get the actual effect? Now, this is incredibly important, but we tend to, most drug trials out there, innovative studies, are looking for effects that are far smaller than this I mean, come to market. I was going to say, if I was, you know, a trialist for a, a company who had a new thing to put on the market, you might go, well, we definitely want patients to take this at night time to, to show a maximum effect for that. Do, we, do people do that? No, they don't. No, they don't. But the thing is, when they come out, most of the trials just said, here's, here's the ACE inhibitors, the angiotensin, here's their effect. There's no, there's no benefit to anybody here. Now, most of these drugs are off patent, the generics, mm. and therefore all of that margin's gone out. Therefore, it's left to us as individual clinicians and the health system to now make this happen. And it seems that there's no overwhelming force to push this forward. Uh, and so I think this is an incredibly interesting issue and shows us the failure to say we, we are, have evidence here 10 years in and I actually have to think, you know, I, as a practitioner, I, I, is, there's no sort of standard record where I think, yeah, actually, we're pushing this, we're checking, are you taking them at night? Here's, here's our recommendation. So this allows us to think differently about implementation research and what we do next. Um, do you think there are other drugs then that, that might be worth testing this in as well? Well, we have tested it in statins, and statins it's recommended you take them at night. But to be honest with you, there are so many issues with statins right now, we should leave that for another programme. And we will do. I'm sure it's going to rear its head again. 
So that's uh, a paper that people should potentially go and read. We'll link to that uh, in the podcast text as always. Anyone else got anything interesting they've yeah. seen this week? So I picked this one because it's a really short title. Uh, Antipsychotic for Preventing Delirium in Hospitalised Adults. Really nice, tight title. But what's interesting about this is most people in hospital will know about delirium, a clinical syndrome marked by acute and fluctuation disturbance in attention and con- cognition. Affects the elderly, but it happens after operations or in acute settings, particularly in critical care units. And what this systematic review shows is that there's no data in sedative effects or delirium duration or length of stay if you use antipsychotics like haloperidol or the second generation antipsychotics compared to placebo. And it's basically saying for prevention, there's no evidence. And then there's another review that says for treatment updated and you get similar effects. There's no evidence to show you should be using these antipsychotics. And I thought that was really interesting that actually they are they claim that they're still being used, but this FDA has no approved treatment for delirium. Sign guidelines say there's ineffective evidence. Cochrane Review shared there's no difference in critically ill patients. Yet when I go to... Uh, the NICE guideline. You used a lot of acronyms in the last. Yeah, I'm really sorry. I'm <laughs> sorry. Nice. I'm sorry. I apologise. You need apologize. like a little bell or a Scottish Intercollegiate Guideline next Network. Impressed you know the word. National Institute of Clinical Excellence. So they're slightly in social care. Something else is in there, <laughs> but that's nice. Their recommendation 1.6.4 basically says that actually you could use haloperidol in people for up to a week. If I need, I need my phone. Sorry about this. I need to be exact when it comes to knife, or I'll get critic. Is that all right? Yeah, of course. That the National Institute of Clinical Excellence, that's nice for short, says in recommendation 1.6.4, if a person with delirium is distressed or considered a risk to themselves or others, and verbal and non-verbal de-escalation techniques are ineffective or inappropriate, consider giving short-term, usually for one week or less, haloperidol. Start the lowest clinically appropriate dose and titrate cautiously according to symptoms. Now, what I'm saying is, number one is there's no evidence for that. Number two is there is evidence for the non-drug interventions, but they're labour-intensive and difficult to deliver. And in a uh, hospital environment where there often is a shortage of nurses, doctors, people are not going to use the verbal and non-verbal de-escalation techniques. Then there'll be a potential for people to use the haloperidol, And the problem here is, is if you are going to do this, you have to have on the drug chart at one week it's struck off because what I concerns me is people just get left on the treatment. Mm. So we've kind of ending where we started here with a with this thing to stop doing. So we are what are we stopping? Haloperidol. Yes. In, in delirium. Ultrasound scanning in third trimester. I'm stopping ultrasound scanning in third trimester. We're starting individualising our kind of colon cancer risk predictions for screening. And our blood pressure nocturnal prescribing. And we're giving people blood pressure at night. So there you go. Lots to change. And practice. don't forget, stop using the acronyms in the bits that matter what this study adds. And I'm going to be holding the editors at the research team to account for this from this point on. And uh, everyone listening can go and have a look at (laughs) (laughs) the EBM journal and send us an all the circle. Oh, yeah, I think I might do a little critique on your journal, Carl. Good good point, You can hold politicians to account, you can hold the main BMJ, but you can't hold the BMJ (laughs) evidence-based medicine to account because we're much smaller 
much smaller team, but actually I'm going to mention it to them and say, look, we have to have this issue because we're being watched. Oh, we have to be nice because when he's boss of the bank of the NHS, oh, yeah, you know, he'll be in charge of oh, all I of our treatment. I forgot we had a new appointment during the <laughs> Yeah, yes, well. I'm leaving. Right, let's leave it there. Before we go, uh, we're doing something a little bit different this week as well. We're bringing you even more evidence uh, in a separate podcast, which will be published uh, alongside this one. Carl and Helen are going to talk to us all about harms. So uh, subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from so you can get that as well. And, you know, whilst you're there, you might want to rate and review us. It does actually really help us get up the podcast charts. Let's have people find us and uh, get the word out about the importance of evidence, which we know you all care about. So uh, until then, it's goodbye from me. Bye from me. And goodbye from me. Bye. Bye.